Namaste, and welcome to tonight's Vijayamantan. I'm Ravi, and I'll be your chair for this evening. Vijayamantan, or VM for short, is a public discussion platform that aims to explore the ideas and challenges facing society today. Tonight's key questions will be, can the Indian idea of dharma, as that which sustains, be a tenable guide in forming a more sustainable political theory, and ultimately, a better society? On the other hand, are Western values too deeply entrenched to evolve? Tonight, I'm extremely privileged to welcome two extraordinary talented and distinguished guests who will be helping us answer these questions. We have Amish Tripathi. Amish is a diplomat, best-selling author and columnist. He's also the director of the Nehru Center in London. And he has just released his second non-fiction book titled Dharma, Decoding the Epics for a Meaningful Life. We also have Rajiv Malhotra. Rajiv is the founder of a non-profit Infinity Foundation, and he's been researching civilizations and their engagement with technology from a historical, social sciences and mind sciences perspective. He's also chairman of the Board of Governors at the Center for Indic Studies at the University of Mass Massachusetts and is a visiting professor at JNU. He is also a best-selling author and has recently released a book titled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, the Five Battlegrounds. Amishji, Rajivji, welcome. For now, let's get into it. So I'd like to start with Amishji with your opening statement for five minutes can you please briefly outline for us what is dharma, a concept most of our audience will be familiar with? And also, what position do you think the West finds itself in presently that it's in need of an idea such as dharma? Namaste. Thank you so much, uh, Ravi, for having me. And I must say what an honor it is uh, to be sharing the stage with Rajivji, a scholar I, I respect immensely, whose books I've read. Um, the audience that is watching this program obviously knows what uh, dharma is. As you rightly said, it is that which sustains. But dharma is also, uh, it's one of those Sanskrit untranslatables. Uh, so there are many concepts associated with it. The first thing we have to be clear of is dharma is not religion. Dharma is above religion. It's beyond uh, religion. The root of the word dharma, uh, the dhatu is dhru, that which sustains, that which binds, that which balances. Uh, that is dharma. So if we have to explore this question, that does the West need dharma? And uh, if so, why? I think to understand this, you have to understand what is at the heart of the dharmic religions and the, uh, the, the other religions, the Abrahamic religions. Dharmic religions would be Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism. And I'm not saying any way is better or worse. It's, just, it's the way it is. At the heart of dharmic religions is dharma. Uh, and at the heart of it, therefore, what guides us is not necessarily faith. Whether you have faith or not is an individual matter. Even an atheist can be a dharmic. At the heart of it is wisdom. Uh, because the ability to understand uh, dharma, to have the viveka, to, uh, to understand your place, what your swadharma is, 
is at the heart of what you need to do to get the the goal uh, that you uh, that any dharmic uh, uh, person aspires for which is moksha which is a release from the cycle of births this is fundamentally different from the other religions whether at the heart of it is faith so either you are a believer in the faith or you are a non believer that's how the world is divided in that way if you understand it from this perspective then much of what we have seen uh, in the west over the last many centuries starts making sense and then what you are seeing even today starts making sense because if at the heart of it is faith and belief in one truth or one god and others being outside of that one truth belief you'll find that almost every day of life is not just the religious people even the atheists follow the one truth philosophy in the western world you find it in, uh, intriguing that even the liberal people follow the one truth philosophy they believe their conception of liberalism is liberalism that everyone else must follow uh, now this worked for much of the western world at a time when their countries and their societies were not diverse uh, you know and at those times they were successful because uh, their belief in one truth and the fact that entire society was based around faith managed to get uh, the society united and made them fiercely competitive uh, but remember there was they achieved that uh, that that unity within their country after a lot of violence uh, so uh, over many centuries first the pagans were wiped out uh, in europe and then many countries actually even within christianity within Protest- uh, protestants and catholicism there were uh, there was often violent conflict and countries became either protestant or catholic and therefore those countries themselves became actually by themselves strong and united because they were built around one conception one truth that made them yes fiercely efficient no doubt about it and that helped them in competing out competing the rest of the world now for the first time in many many centuries their countries have actually become diverse uh, there are many truths that exist in many of these western countries and that's where the challenge is that how do they how do they uh, make peace with this diversity how do they make sure their society is able to function with this diversity because their entire approach till now the one truth approach is not designed for this uh, and which is where i point out uh, i'll repeat the point that i said earlier that even the liberals uh, in the west tend to follow the one truth philosophy now if you understand that then again you start seeing that so often that even the liberals will want to enforce their point of view even on other countries uh, as has happened in in libya in syria many of those invasions were actually supported by liberals which we in the non western world would find very strange that that they ended up killing so many people to apparently improve those countries this all emerges from the one truth philosophy that is the fund- fundamental dichotomy which is impossible to maintain in a diverse country uh which is where i think dharma can help them because india has lived with diversity and the indian subcontinent has lived with diversity 
for millennia. And dharma, since it's not the path of one truth, which everyone has to believe in, dharma is actually the path of wisdom. It gives the openness and the space for multiple truths and a way for coexistence to emerge. As it's beautifully said in the Rig Veda, Ekam Vadanti. This path opens that opportunity. Whether the West will listen or not, I don't know. I can't say I'm an expert in, on the West. I've been here just for a year. Uh, in London, I've been an India boy all my life. I have never lived abroad outside uh, of India. Only in the last one year have I lived abroad. And much of this, thanks to uh, Corona, uh, has been stuck at home. Uh, but So I don't know whether Dharma will find acceptance in the West. But I wish they do accept it because it will, it will help them. Uh, make peace with the diversity that they're confronted with in any case that diversity is not going away now their societies have become diverse okay thank you very much I think um, you've outlined some key concepts there um, such as you know this idea of the truth and also this idea of efficiency versus sustainability We'll go now to, and, and I think I'll pick up on some of those later. So we'll go now to Rajivji's opening statements. And Rajivji, if there's anything on Amishji's statements that you want to pick up on, but also more specifically for you, is it time now for the East and West to begin to, to kind of blur these lines and begin to work together to face the challenges of our times? Namaste. And thank you to Vichar Manthan for organizing this. And thank you to Amish, whose uh, writings are amazing. Uh, I consider him a dear friend. And it's, uh, it's good to have you uh, here. Uh, I, I just want to, at the outset, say that I'll take a contrarian view, because I think that'll make it more interesting. Uh, there's a diff- there are many problems I see in the proposition that uh, dharma ought to, that dharma will, dharma will, um, you know, take over the West or influence the West and spread around the world and, and we'll export it and so on. Uh, first of all, there's a difference between what ought to be and what is or is likely to be. Uh, Duryodhan ought to have been dharmic, but he wasn't. And it took Sri, Sri Krishna's intervention uh, because uh, truth did not triumph. This business that truth shall prevail didn't happen. Uh, in the Ramayana, uh, you know, Ravan should have been different, much better person, but he wasn't. That's the reality. So if you're a pragmatic person, you deal with the pragmatics rather than the idealistic view of what he ought to have been. And uh, in both cases, and, and also throughout human history, uh, things haven't happened in an ideal way, the way, you know, the way Dharma would like things to have happened. But uh, there is ego, there is all kinds of power plays. So th- that's the real world. And so when you are forecasting, uh, the, the outlook for dharma, the prognosis for dharma's future in the world, in the, in, as far as the next 50 years is concerned, we cannot talk about you know, a million years from now. Uh, you have to be very pragmatic. Now, the, the other thing I, uh, that uh, you have to understand is there's a difference between hard power and soft power. And soft power, we are we, we're very fond of saying that uh, you know, we have the soft power, uh, but we don't. Uh, and, and secondly, the, the soft power is useless without hard power. And this is proven in both the itihas. Uh, the soft power of persuading Duryodhan doesn't work. The soft power of persuading Duryodhan doesn't work. You have to have a fight with him. And that is hard power. Similarly, uh, no amount of convincing and arguing and giving logic to Ravan works. Uh, see, Ramchandra has to fight with him. So hard power has to be used. Uh, soft power did not prevail. So that is a lesson that we are learning from our itihas. 
the other the 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 common claim that uh, yoga is india's soft power is not true so we need to understand the word soft power the the term the word power is important in soft power otherwise it's just culture i mean i like uh, somebody's food i like somebody's music i like somebody's clothing and fashions power it becomes soft power culture becomes soft power it has if it has the power to persuade me to change my mind about them so if the us congress is passing a resolution or the british parliament is passing a resolution that uh, you know uh, india uh, india uh, uh, is uh, uh, having a religious prejudice and it has hate speech and it is against minorities uh, yog would be soft power if one call from uh, uh, you know amish to all the yog centers uh, all which are mostly owned by white people and in the united states if uh, somebody who is in charge of this soft power yog were to call the tens of thousands of yog centers and say listen you know that yog is the path to freedom it's not the path to uh, you know uh, exactly the opposite how can you say we don't have religious freedom in india when yog is giving you guys freedom and if as a result of this few phone calls if uh, millions of uh, emails and letters would go to the us congress or to the british parliamentarians saying that look listen withdraw this uh, this bill because it is a nonsense how can you accuse uh, the land of yoga to be having no religious freedom when they are the ones giving us freedom that would be power that would be soft power soft power would be the ability to persuade and change people's minds because of your cultural artifact but yog never has succeeded in convincing any western country to change its policy on india the policy on india is based on pragmatics it's based on military it's based on trade it's based on those kinds of things so the inability of yog to actually be used as power shows that we can call it culture we can say it's a great culture it's a great gift to the world but it is not soft power so we need to we need to be clear on that the export of yog and parts of different parts of dharma is being digested into the west which is a different thing than exporting it as is i have a whole theory of digestion which says that you know when a tiger eats a goat or a deer it dismantles it into little parts and parts of parts and parts of parts until it is down to the dna and the dna is broken into smaller components and then it is absorbed what is useful is reassembled into the tiger's dna and what is not uh, required is thrown out excreted so dharma is being digested into the west dharma is being digested into the west which means it's being reformulated in a western context so it's not like it's not like dharma is taking over dharma is like raw material raw material which the west takes china is taking a lot of stuff from everywhere so basically the aggressive civilizations are good digesters they are like the predator like the tiger they're good at digesting so they can grab things from india which works whatever parts they can take yog and separate it from uh, its dharmic foundation they can take dharma and separate it from its uh, uh, its roots and 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 pick components here and there a la carte and and uh, reformulate it into their own civilization that kind of uh, influence of dharma will happen uh, that kind of influence of dharma already is happening but i think the question was more like dharma as such dharma seen as dharma whether it will uh, prevail in the world and, and in that sense i don't think it will so my my position is that you have to as a pragmatic person you have to understand where is the future of power going and then see what is the role of dharma and the future of power in the world is going towards things like artificial intelligence 
Uh, artificial intelligence is as fundamental as the industrial revolution. So what happened to civilizations uh, in the industrial revolution? Certain people won, the certain people lost, the world got colonized, there were new haves and have nots, and the flow of uh, influence, the flow of civilization, influ civilizational influence, English language, all kind of laws and rights and whatever, uh, went from the power to powerful people to the less powerful people. So we need to understand how this new revolution of artificial intelligence is going to create a new structure of world system, including new colonies. Maybe United States and China will colonize. China will colonize Pakistan, much of Africa, and they'll be rival colonizers. They'll fight each other for colonies and uh, take over many countries. So if you look at the world system as it's likely to emerge in the next uh, quarter century, uh, that is the power structure which is going to determine what kind of metaphysics uh, people will espouse. And I don't see that it is dharma-driven or soft power-driven uh, future power structure. Uh, the other thing that I want you to uh, take, take note of is that the India, the India cannot export what it doesn't consume. You cannot export and unless you are a good role model to consume it yourself. So Indians are now worshipping Google Devta, Twitter Devta, Facebook Devta. These are terms in my book I'm showing. The Adhikaris are no longer our rishis and our gurus. The Adhikaris are, uh, you know, whatever the algorithm told you. Uh, I, I have young people in India telling me, why do you want us to learn all this? Uh, we'll ask Google and uh, Google search will tell us what we need to know. We'll ask Siri. Uh, we'll go to Wikipedia. So the reference point of knowledge and truth is no longer our own tradition. Our youth are going in that direction. And I am troubled by it. That's why I'm writing this book. And I had great difficulty convincing people, whether it's in the government, whether it's in the, in, in the, whether it's the spiritual gurus, whether it's all the Hindus in the limelight in social media, to take this matter seriously. And I've been talking about it for several years now. So if India is itself a kind of a victim of this uh, algorithm, uh, uh, algorithm Raj, kind of, if you will, or digital, uh, digital rishis or digital devatas that are coming all over the place, then how do you expect the West will take our dharma if we are actually not following our own dharma? So if you look at the sthula sharir of Rashtra, which is defense, infrastructure, education, industry, and, and you look at its cracks right now, and if you look at the sukshma sharir, the minds of our people, the minds of our people going more towards social media, more, going more towards consumerism, uh, more towards the rat race uh, than our own values. Uh, and and you, then you look at the current Sharia of what kind of karma do we have? Are we really doing tapasya like we are supposed to? You can see that uh, if, if we aren't uh, uh, good practitioners of dharma ourselves, no matter how much slogans we have and we have this month, this and that uh, festival and we want to propagate and promote, in the end, the world will respect us if we are strong, if we, are, if, if we were to show that we are a role model for the practice of dharma and based on that, we have achieved prosperity and we've achieved good values and good lifestyle for all our people. We have good environment. We are, don't have too much pollution. Uh, we are very animal friendly. Look at the, uh, the state of affairs in our country, in, in, in the way we treat nature. If we were a good role model for all these things, which we are not, and if you could say that these are built on a practice of dharma, then I think we would be in good shape exporting and expecting other people to also follow the dharma. But that's my, that's my opening position and I look forward to a lively discussion. Thank you. Fantastic. I think you've covered a wide breadth there. And um, again, we're going to have to be, be very wary of our own sort of linguistic hygiene and the terms that we're using. So, so for the purposes of the next hour and a half, when we talk about dharma, 
let's let's differentiate it from its geography and let's talk about it as its as its fundamental precepts um, in terms of sustainability, flourishing, um, minimum harm, and, and these ideas. And when we talk about the West again, let's let's strip away the geography and be talking about it as a as a political, social philosophy, or indeed as a culture that that's permeating the globe. So Amish Ji, I'm going to come with you from a point that almost Rajiv Ji seems to be pointing at, which is, are, are we at risk now when we ask this question of a sort of antiquarianism, of harking back to the past um, when we try and bring Dharma in? Or opposite to that, what is it that Dharma is bringing to the table that's so key? And sort of, can we have maybe two or three key ideas that you think could be integrated into the Western political philosophy? Um, I'll, uh, I'll clarify once again what I'd said earlier. I don't know whether Dharma will be accepted in the West or not. Uh, like I said, I'm, I've been here just for a year. Uh, and that too much of it in lockdown. I don't know that I think it will help them if they do accept it in its whole. Have they digested parts of our knowledge, especially the hard knowledge? Yes. And much of it has been forgotten. Uh, many have forgotten that even the Fibonacci series actually came from India originally. Uh, so much of our thing, and we ourselves, India has forgotten it. But have they digested it as a whole? I would perhaps think no, because it would reflect in their societies. Uh, you know, often the divisions that we speak of, the political divisions that one sees in the West. Remember, I'm a diplomat, so I have to be a little careful. I will not use names of politicians. Of course. But there is uh, almost always a thought uh, in most countries to blame politician A or politician B. I'm saying in Western countries for the rise of various different thoughts. Now, there is a point of view on history that history is a great, uh, with a great man approach, that one strong man comes and then changes the course of history. There is another way of looking at history, that there are social forces and whoever you see as a man causing the change is not actually causing the change. He is riding the wave of the change that already happens. My submission is that many of the divisions that one sees in the West are not driven by politicians. Those divisions are there already at a deep social level, which as a country which, uh, you know, we all know there's a certain authoritarian country, which is a risk of, which is a risk for many freedom loving countries. This should encourage many democracies to come together. So India as a democracy would like our allies to be internally strong as well. And these social divisions that clearly appear very deep, uh, I'm not so sure they will disappear just with a change of an election result. Um, how will those social divisions be healed? Uh, and I'll go back to my point. Many of these social divisions happen because one side is just so sure that their way of life, their approach is the right approach and the others better convert. So that's so where the problem happens. Now, now uh, coming back to a few of the, the other uh, things that you, uh, that you said and Mr. Uh, Ms. Uh, Rajiv Ji also highlighted, I completely agree that, uh, that soft power can only be built on hard power. 
I did an article on this. There was a a soft power report, a global soft power report that had come out last year of various different countries. Uh, Ban Ki Moon, the former UN Secretary General, had released it, and I was invited to speak out there. And I did an article for it as well. And now there, I had outlined this that you will find many cases in history of countries having hard power but no soft power. Okay, that happens, like it happened with the Mongols, for example. Right, Mongol nation, uh, 700 years ago. But you find almost no example of a nation having soft power, but no hard power. So hard power is a necessary function, not a sufficient function, but it's a necessary function for soft power. So does India have to become stronger? Yes. I mean, uh, India is the home of dharma. I do appreciate your point that we should reduce it only to uh, to geographical constructs. uh i believe dharma can be useful whether it will be useful to the west i don't know but for dharma to be proven to be useful india has to be stronger it may sound a little prosaic but the strength of the message of dharma is different if india is growing at 10% and the strength of the message of dharma is different if is india is growing at 4% our strength will pick up on that one so So we're sort of talking about power and hard power and soft power, and let's stay on this topic for now. And we we've had previous monthans on this this topic in the West, and we've seen that prior to sort of where this half a century, there was religion, which is a sort of bastion of moral and ethics, and and how society should be functioning and how people should be behaving, and the sort of crumbling of that institution has left a. west let's say with a with a void which has been filled to some degree with postmodernism and we're not going to go into it too much but there is a void there and the idea potentially is dharma has something to offer into this void um so rajiv ji what is the west to do how is it to fill this void if not by sort of more sustainable principles so uh, first of all uh, i also want to correct that uh, to to uh, amish's point uh you know the history of rome versus greece in this book i make it a history of hard power versus soft power uh rome had the hard power of money engineering uh, you know a lot of military and all that and greece had the civilization the philosophy the arts and the culture and all soft power and in their wars which went on for centuries ultimately rome defeated greece and rome digested the greek culture became the greek or roman culture so the owner of the hard power conquered the soft power and took it over digested it and now he has both that's what gave that's what became known as the western civilization this merger of uh, digestion of greece into rome uh, so the the history is uh, very clear on this uh, you know if you look at what happens if you have a soft power and a hard power and they have an encounter and i bring this out in my book in the context of india and china that is in, is china the hard power and india the soft power and are we going to end up the same way uh, this is a, this is the thesis i have uh, so now the second thing the point i want to make is uh, there is no such thing as the east in your in the way you formulated the question you talked about the east you know china is a very separate civilization now in the last 50 years there is it is you cannot say that there are dharma civilization and we are all this old dharma thing and all that that's good nostalgia mm-hmm. for us we like it makes us feel good and so forth 
forth. But China doesn't see itself as a dharma civilization. It doesn't fit into either the so-called East or the so-called West. China is China. It's, 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 we should respect it for having created a very unique new worldview, a new metaphysics, a new political social thought. Whether it wins or not, in the long run, time will tell. And, and whatever you may think of it, you have to give it credit that it's very original. So the, 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 there is no, I mean, the, the idea of East was a Western construct. It is the other. It's the West's other. So I don't think we should essentialize East as some kind of a very robust, uh, a, a, you know, long-term construct that's an absolute. There is, I, I don't believe there is. So there is Dharma and there is, uh, uh, you know, Abrahamism. Uh, there is, a, but the non-Abrahamic leftist uh, the liberalism, is, which, which is a reaction against Abrahamism is also there. And then there is many other worldviews. There's Chinese worldview and there's many in Africa and uh, Middle East, Arab countries and all that. So there's multiple worldviews and negating one doesn't uh, put you in the other camp. It's not a binary. That, that's, I think, a, a, a point that you should reformulate the question not as a binary, that if the West is in trouble, then they need the East, and the East equals Dharma, and Dharma is us, and so we are doing very well. I mean, that's a good way to kind of feel good about ourselves, but it's not very practical. I, I, I don't think so. The, uh, the question of... Uh, 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 does the West need dharma? Yes, there are so many good things about dharma that they need, but so does India need dharma. I mean, before we go to the West and say they need dharma, we should go to India and say, well, we need dharma. So it is not politics. It is not the politics of, you know, we'll build this temple and we'll have this symbolism and uh, we'll win these elections. We'll beat out those guys. We put FIRs, they'll all go in jail. I mean, if you look at the so-called uh, you know, champions of dharma in the social media, there is lack of depth. They're, they're all into sensationalism, all into chasing the ego and, and becoming more popular than the next guy and ousting the next guy. So this, this rat race for, uh, you know, becoming a luminary all of a sudden uh, is what's driving a lot of social behavior. It is hardly dharma. It is hardly dharma behavior. So I, I, my feeling is that the real project of dharma has to be, uh, India has to understand dharma and has to espouse it and heal itself and fix itself and then the world will follow. As far as the other countries are concerned, uh, the American West, the, uh, or, or the West, let's say West in general, American, European, the right wing is very deep into history centrism. Uh, his historical, uh, historical absoluteness, the whole Christianity, Judaism, uh, as a kind of a history-centric construct, which is showing up in the American conflicts today. Uh, you know, in the in the US, U.S., all these conflicts because these the the white supremacists is going back to their origins and their roots and the sense of superiority, and the uh, the Western left is uh, into its own uh, uh, values based on uh, human rights, social justice, uh, which is neither the left in the West, nor the right in the West, are actually compatible with the Vedic values. Uh, it, it, you know, so a lot of Indians have this thing that uh, the global left is no good because they're bad people. So we'll vote for Trump or something. We'll go to the right. As if the Hindu right and the American right are kind of both are right. Therefore, they are brothers. They're not brothers because the American right is full of evangelists. They are supporting all this missionary work and evangelism work. So you have to be, the world is more complex. The West itself is broken down into multiple, uh, multiple ideological camps. And there's no such thing as East, which is consistent on many camps. So the problem of where does Dharma fit in is not an East versus West. I do not uh, uh, turn it into an East. East is exporting and West ought to buy it because they are, they got, you know, I think that the future of the world is going to be driven by th very pragmatic things like artificial intelligence. And this artificial intelligence is going to give you 
experiences, whether I like it or not, I'm a dharmic person. I, I don't like the materialism that the AI brings, but I'm a pragmatic person. It's not what ought to be according to me, but what is likely to be. So, so, so just before we go into AI, yes. um, and we will come to AI and yes. its relationship with, with power as we've been. And dharma. And again, dharma, absolutely. But Rajivji, I'd just like to come back to you on that one. So let, let's take dharma out of it, this East-West, even India-West uh, context. But then, you know, you, you've rightly pointed out that even in India, the, arguably who should be the guardians of dharma, that, that dharmic thinking, that process is not there. But wh whether it be in geographically India or England or America, what institutions are, are then needed to begin to build a, a, a deeper understanding, exploration, research into dharma for it then to permeate into our society? So the, our tradition answers this. It says that the Shruti is, uh, is universal and constant, but Smritis have to be done again. So mm -hmm. Smritis have to be done. And artificial intelligence is Smriti. Smritis is science, modern science, modern technology, modern political thought. These are all Smritis. Vanu Smriti was a Smriti. It was rewritten over many Smritis were written. Many Dharma Shastras were written. So Smriti is the new thought. Define, yeah, please define Smriti for us. So Smriti is, that, is, the, is the kind of Shastra which is contemporary, which has space and time. And in, in the next generation will write their own Smriti. Uh, people will debate, uh, argue and say, okay, I don't accept this Smriti. This bill, new bill will come. The, the parliament and all his bills are Smritis. So the, 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 the idea of Smritis is so important and we are not constructing Smritis for the 21st century in accordance with Dharma. We are either frozen in time and valorizing old, old images and old fantasies of stuck frozen in time or we are adopting the Western Smritis. We are adopting the Western ideas of human rights, Western ideas. Even artificial intelligence is, a, is based on, uh, on materialistic biology, a materialistic model of biology, which is what Vedas don't accept. And so we need to have created a artificial intelligence based on our idea of intelligence. So, so, so we're clear then, we, we want to move away from this harking back to the past. Yes. We need to rewrite and explore what some would call scripture, but, but we're calling a sort of more modern... Um, Smritis. Smriti. Yeah, actually, let's, let's use the term Smriti. You <laughs> wonderfully defined it. Um, and then there's a need for this to be developed. So Amish ji, would you like to come in here? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's like this, where I would uh, probably contest this a bit. Uh, Rajiv ji is right, Shruti is that which is heard. It's divine in origin, it's Vedas, it sets forth the principles. And Shruti is that which is... Just a little quiet, Amish ji, you'll have to speak fairly loud. Okay, Smritis is that which is remembered, that is, uh, you, know, you have various Smritis across different ages, each age has its new Smritis, uh, there were various Smritis which are contemporaneous uh, as well, the Vyasa Smriti, Apastamba Smriti, Manu Smriti, were all uh, contemporaneous. Where I would uh, contest this a bit is on harking back to the past, I'll tell you why. India is in a particularly uniquely difficult situation. We are the only pre-Bronze Age civilization that has survived till today. Every other pre-Bronze Age civilization was wiped out. Most of them violently, right? And India has suffered centuries of, of extremely violent attacks, both physical and intellectual. Uh, and it has taken a lot of struggle to survive. 1947 would have been a lovely phase to start rebuilding. Unfortunately, we didn't, right? Uh, 
the actual intellectual economic rebuilding began a lot later because for the first few decades we were still uh, enamored uh, by a foreign philosophy so what we have to do today is not just come up with our new smritis which will contextualize ancient knowledge to the modern world we also have to generate pride in ourselves right uh, one of the key things and i did an article on this once that uh that i know i know it is said that pride comes before a fall but you cannot fall if you haven't risen in the first place right uh how do we generate that sense of rootedness that sense of pride something which we have lost over centuries something which sadly we did not reform our education system post uh, independence we've only started talking about it now so harking back to the past to give indians a sense of uh of what we had or what we had achieved building a sense of pride is positive for example so many indians have been convinced that india didn't exist as a nation and that the british created it for us uh if we don't contest this then how do we how do we generate a national feeling now there are texts which can the vishnu puran says uttaram yat samudrasya madrasya eva dakshinam marsham tad bharatam nam bharati yatra santati that north of the ocean south of the himalay lies the noble nation of of bharat and they live the descendants of bharat this from the vishnu puran thousands of years old we must propagate this so that we create a nationalist spirit a sense of pride this is where harking back to the past can be useful where i would agree with rajiv ji is when harking back to the past becomes a balm uh, to soothe the soul rather than a fuel to drive our ambition yes that is negative so people get into you know oh we had traveled to mars you know 3000 years ago no there's no evidence of that right so let, but did we have surgery did we practice surgery 1500 yes so there are things which can give us uh, pride that should be a fuel to create new smritis and to drive our ambition today we need both because india is in a particularly difficult situation we are rebuilding and also adapting to a very fast changing world so let, let let's explore some nuance and i'm going to come back to you amish ji so uh, mandela talks about in his book he talks about this idea of the need for nationalism certainly when a nation is developing which can then later be dropped um and you've pointed to this idea of having a solid identity for oneself but so most of our audience uh, will be part of the sort of uk hindu diaspora uh, and and we can see that they're immensely successful you know that they're amongst the richest per capita in the uk they're certainly one of the most highest educated per capita so is is this not where our sense of pride in dharma and f- flourishing should be coming from is our current achievements uh is that is that to me yes yeah absolutely okay then then let me uh, let me push back a bit on this and this is one of the things look i'm i'm an indian i'm a hindu so perhaps i can say this uh individually i find hindus to be extremely uh, uh successful in the uk a term i've often heard is the model minority i heard that when i yes. when i came here that uh, uh normally uh, hindus and people of indian origin in in the uk do well don't commit crime on average focused on education earn well uh, good contributors to their country but how well do we work together does does the indian community in the uk have cultural and political power which is commensurate to the tremendous success it's had let's be honest the answer perhaps would be we could do better 
right? Uh, and is that because for various reasons we don't tend to work together as a community? Uh, and if that does happen, why does that happen? And these are things to explore. What is it that creates? And I'm not saying that the Indian community in the UK should in any way work against, uh, you know, what the nation, what the interests of the UK should be. No, you're, you're UK citizens. You must work for your own country. But how does, how should the Indians and Hindus in UK, how should they come together so that they are far more influential, commensurate to the success they've achieved in the education and economic space? This comes from spirit. This comes from a uh, from a community spirit. This comes from a nationalist spirit. How do you create that? How do you create that sense of pride? How do you create that sense of togetherness? Right, Those things are critical. One of the things that the Western world did in the colonial movement, uh, pre-colonial movement, modern Western civilization is largely a Northern European phenomenon. It was the Germanic countries, okay. France. It wasn't really the Mediterranean phenomenon. I mean, in ancient times, in the Greco-Roman world, Italy had more in common with Libya than Italy had with Germany or yeah. Italy had with the UK. But the modern Western civilization digested Greco-Roman culture as their parent civilization. Greco-Roman at its peak wasn't even Christian, right? Why did they do that? Because past success gave them a sense of pride, a sense of togetherness, right? Uh, and th there is a reason for why they did it, because it creates a sense of togetherness, sense of purpose. Why should Washington, D.C. have Mediterranean uh, architecture as a part of its myth building? It all builds to, it all points to the way they created their national spirit. There is an importance to that. And if you answer this, you'll also get an answer to why the Hindu and Indian community in India, uh, in the UK, has overachieved economically and educationally. But to be honest, culturally and politically, still could do a lot more. So, so, so Rajuji, final question on this topic, and then let's move on to a sort of deep dive into hard power and soft power. Amish is pointing to this idea of the narrative that we tell ourselves as individuals, as a culture, and as a civilization. How, how do you see us beginning to build this in a sort of coherent manner while still you know, interweaving these sort of dharmic concepts? So first of all, I want to remove a, a, a kind of a doubt or, a, a, you know, suspicion that I'm walking away from what I did for the last 25 years, which is to talk about Indian grand narrative. I mean, the whole, my whole book is, my, all my stuff is about building the Indian grand narrative. Being different is about what is different about our narrative than everybody else. And breaking India is about protecting the narrative so others don't take over. So, so of course, by all means, I believe in this. I believe, but you know, this Indian grand narrative that I've been espousing, and this book is, I should come out by, I've been waiting, I've been delaying it to produce other books, but that Indian grand narrative book, I owe it to a lot of people. So the narrative idea that I espouse is open architecture. It is not frozen. It is not fixed. It's an open architecture, which is very future compatible. So, you know, you keep making progress, you keep discovering new things, science is compatible, technology is compatible, AI is compatible. So this is why I'm really into this AI for a dharmic architecture, in, on, a, on a dharmic architecture. I'm not deviating away from it. I'm just saying that dharma needs to catch up and it needs, needs to be made forward compatible. So if you, if you make the, uh, uh, if you take uh, 
you know, a, a, the, that part of the foundation, that part of the f- past, which is the Shruti, which is an art, open architecture, and then you keep populating it with new and new experiences. Uh, then you have a very yeah. efficient learning engine. You have a learning system that's constantly evolving. And that is what Shrutis, uh, Smritis are. Smritis are taking the open architecture of the Shrutis and populating them with new experiences and upgrading them, updating them, debating them, you know, figuring out what works for, uh, in a very pragmatic way. So our, our culture is supposed to be very pragmatic. And it is not, uh, you know, stuck in some symbolism of the past without necessarily even knowing what it means and just to hang on to it for pride. And, you know, somebody is beating us up, so we'll, we'll beat them back because we, are this, we have this kind of uh, emotional. It is not an emotional thing. Uh, so we, we need to be extremely intelligent, very pragmatic. We need to have hard power like in the, the you know, Bhagwan comes as an avatar to exert hard power. So what more can you, what is a bigger case than that for hard power? Okay. And I, so this is to reassert the, uh, the truth of the Shruti in the modern context with the use of hard power. So that is, is what I would consider is our narrative. It's a moving narrative. It, it, it's an open architecture narrative. It keeps assimilating new experiences. It, it changes with the context and, and uh, it, it is not afraid of hard power. So it, it seems, yep. through, if I could just come in and Sorry. then I'll bring you in. So it seems we've established dharma as this sort of fluid evolving concept, but it, but it seems to have this thread of following sustainability and social flourishing. And I'm getting some questions in from our audience about that. So, just to our audience at home, if you do want to dive in deeper to this concept of dharma, there's a podcast on the Vichar Mantan website just on what is dharma. What we're going to do is we're going to move the discussion a little bit away from that and stay in the realms of power. Um, Amishji, I know you wanted to come in, so I'm going to bring you in here. But, but also, let's dive into what institutions now do we need to begin effectively building this soft power? Um, yeah, let, let's start with that one. Yeah. So, um, no, firstly, I just wanted to say on this point, I agree with Rajiv ji. Uh, there is an unfortunate tendency that one has seen emerging uh, in, in, in some parts of those who are, pri- who are proud of, of being Indian, that look, nothing can be changed. Uh, you know, everything has to be frozen. No, that, that was not what our ancestors said in any case. Uh, we always had the, the tradition of keeping the best of the old and adding in the best of the new. Uh, we are not nihilists. We don't want to burn everything from the past and start afresh. But we are not uh, hidebound conservatives either. That will remain stuck uh, to the past no matter what new uh, uh, changes uh, come in. So now that I agree with Rajiv ji. Uh, we have to keep the best of the past and add in the best of the new. Now, coming to your question on, on hard power, what are the institutions we need? Look, uh, at the heart of the modern uh, method of, of competing uh, for the last few years is capital and money. Okay. We made wrong economic choices till 1991 and we suffered for it. Uh, communism has an unparalleled record. Communism, socialism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, has an unparalleled record of utter and complete failure wherever it has been tried. Sadly, we tried it too, and it delivered failure as it usually, as it always does. Fortunately, post 1991, we started reforming. Not fast enough, but India is, you know, often we Indians forget the scale of our country. To be fair to our politicians, 
you know, I eng- I engage with a lot of uh, politicians because of my role, and it is one of the mo- most difficult jobs on the planet being an Indian politician. Uh, we are such a vast country. We have more people in India than North America, Europe, Middle East combined. It is not easy. Causing change in India is not easy. Things take time. But I would give credit across the spectrum for things broadly moving in the right direction. We have become far richer. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. By 2030, projections go, we will be the third largest economy in the world. Capital makes a big difference. What are the institutions we need to build up? We need stronger armed forces. That's the first thing. Right. In terms of soft power? No, soft power cannot exist without hard power. As I said in my, in my first uh, intervention, and as Rajiv ji also said, I did an article on this uh, a year hard back. Power is hard power is the basics. And if you haven't built hard power, soft power is impossible. There's, there's no case study that I can think of. Even, even Greece built its soft power when it was a hard power, uh, when it was a, a great Eastern Mediterranean naval hard power. Um, in ancient times. Uh, so we need to build our armed forces. We need to have our own uh, indigenous defense industry. Often we Indians do not realize the importance of this enough. We are the biggest importers of arms uh, in the world. No great power becomes a great power without having its own defense industry. We need to build that. We've started going in that direction. Okay. So our armed forces. Secondly, our political processes, right? I think they are pretty reasonable. Be brief. So, okay. Political process are reasonably set. Okay. Then I won't get into all that. I'll get into soft power. Then. Uh, one of the key things that I find is our temples and our universities. Our temples were great centers of our soft power, of our culture. Uh, temples, sadly, are, uh, are not in the control of the community uh, anymore. They haven't been uh, in many places for, for nearly a century now. Temple control, and this is uh, this is an unfortunate thing of the secularism that is practiced in India. That temple, uh, that uh, churches and mosques, gurudwaras cannot be touched by the government, but temples can easily be taken over. How do we build our own uh, our own cultural traditions, our own uh, scriptures, our own smritis, if the temples are controlled by bureaucrats? Um, that to me is a very key reform that's needed. The second is our universities. Uh, our universities are still completely in the Western paradigm. There is a new national education policy that's come up, that's come out. Uh, it is very visionary in its uh, in its scope. Uh, I do hope to see uh, universities that are more rooted in Indian traditions. Uh, you know, teaching our our way of life and creating. Uh, uh, scholarly, uh, modern scholarly traditions. Once again, there are more Sanskrit departments, sadly, in the West than in India. It's ridiculous. So, so let's explore that idea. So there's more Sanskrit departments, for example, in Germany than than there are in India. And recently, the, this idea of starting a sort of dharmic-based think tank has risen up in the UK. Um, and, and the Center for Sustainability is proposing to become uh, sort of an institution where dharmic texts are kept, archived, studied. Um, Rajiv ji, do, do you think a dharmic think tank would produce smritis, would be rewriting the smritis? 
You see, the thing is, I tried to start one. I gave up my life, I gave, my, my, my career. I had a very successful career. I gave up uh, whatever I could afford, uh, you know, took big risks. People kept asking me, they still ask me, why are you doing all this? Who is it for? You don't need to do this. It's a thankless job. Are these people ever going to have even gratitude? Are they going to? And I, I tell them, I'm not doing it for gratitude. So I've done my best to start a think tank. I mean, you know, for this very purpose. But there are the, the society is so fragmented. The society is so full of egos. Everybody wants to stand on your shoulder and jump ahead and push you aside. So people will use you. If you start a think tank, people will soon break up, break up, break up, like political parties break up, like gurus, their religious organizations break up. We're not able to build institutions because institutions require not only good leaders, but good followers. And the good followers can't betray and go off on their own. So you start a think tank and pretty soon there'll be 10 of them. The same fellows will start 10 of them. You look at how many Hindu organizations are starting in the West every year. You know, everybody wants his name on the left margin as one of the vice presidents, founders, directors, something like that. So many Hindu organizations start forming Dharma and Hindu, this and that, because the ego wants acclaim, quick acclaim. The real problem, root problem is we are not doing the tapasya. We're not doing the karma. We want the phala. What, what do you mean by tapasya again, please? Tapasya is, tapasya is hard work without the, seeking the reward, including sacrifice, including doing the, what is tough, what is controversial, uh, what uh, most people will not be willing to do. Uh, that is the tapasya that we, we should be doing. Very few tapasvis exist. Most people want to become some Hindu leader in order for limelight, in order for political, uh, you know, climbing up the ladder, get some post somewhere or get some, uh, you know, some fame. Uh, but very few of them are actually making the hard contributions, sticking their neck out, making, uh, uh, taking the risks which they should be taking. So the, the problem of a Hindu think tank, that, that has been my experience of Hindu think tanks. I've seen about 40 or 50 Hindu think tanks come and go in the past quarter century. And there's very little sustainability of the think tank because the basic rules of the game, the basic ethics, work ethic is not there. Rampant with plagiarism, they'll just basically take what you've produced and put their own name and spin it. I've had, I mean, I could write a book on the, the problems with, the, you know, my experiences with trying to start dharmic think tanks. Absolutely. And, and that's coming from your own sort of passion. Yes, coming from my own. And, I, and, and, and so there is something, there's a character issue. We, our, we also need to bring into our people the character building uh, that, uh, that has to go. The dharma starts at individuals. You need to build individuals with yoga, with tapasya, with karma, uh, with sacrifice, uh, giving up, tyag. And, and when you have enough critical mass of individuals, you can make an institution. So we, we, we've got five minutes to our audience Q&A uh, and there's plenty coming in. So do keep them coming in. I'm looking forward to asking them. It seems we, we've kind of covered the space of think tanks and beyond sort of funding and the urge and the people um, and the research, it, it needs what Rajiji's pointed to is sort of this idea of character of individuals to build their capacity and their responsibility yes. towards society. We, we've got four minutes, but I, I'm going to come on to this topic of AI and, and the relationship with power and dharma. And Rajivji, I know you want to come in, but I'm first going to go to Amishji and then I'm going to let you have the last word on this one. Um, so Amishji, AI and indeed AI surveillance is, is having an increasingly intimate role in our lives, whether we want to or not. How do you see the relationship between dharma and this AI? Um, I have to admit, I haven't thought deeply on this issue, uh, on the dharma and AI. 
but is uh, ai uh, a given in this space yes uh, is there a risk for authoritarianism uh, yes and you know one of the one of the intriguing things that i had spoken of earlier when we think of authoritarianism we always think of uh, george orwell in 1984 where authoritarianism comes in through force where a big brother comes in and you know just cows you down there is another uh, role model of authoritarianism which is aldous huxley uh, a brave new world where actually uh, authoritarianism wasn't brought in by force people were attracted into authoritarianism they just made it uh, beguiling and beautiful and seductive and in a way i mean all of us have have bought our chains we spend huge amounts of money to buy our uh, chains which has given them the data uh, to make ai possible um and to me it appears like the 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 door is wide open already i don't know if there's any turning back how can dharma help us in manage this in managing this look i'm looking forward to reading rajiv ji's book uh, but if this is something that is already already on uh, in many ways i know i know experts say that singularity is still some time away but uh, many things that could be classified as ai are actually already in our space uh the way uh, the way what we see on google search the the algorithms i mean they are actually already defining uh, uh, almost adjusting our our world view and minds already what is it if not ai thank you yeah. um okay. i'd love to hear rajiv ji yeah, uh, let's on this actually i mean rajiv you you you've just written a book about this topic so um i'm going to have to ask you to be brief i think the audience questions that have come in do come back onto this so you'll have opportunity to explore it further but you know how do you see that relationship between dharma and ai and, and please do reference your book so the thing is this is too short uh, two minutes i can't say it it's a 520 page book if after 5 years of research i can't say it we, we want But them in, to read it a, also in in a in a in a nutshell what in a couple of, if you send us what i will say is that uh, it's a mind uh, the ai is a mind expansion augments the mind uh, expands the mind uh, enhances the mind disrupts the mind it can also colonize the mind so it basically manages manipulates at the mental level so any domain of uh, human activity which is about the mind uh, is being t- uh, the ai is a very important thing so whether it is learning the shastra whether it is being able to do a, a search engine on shastra whether it is able, you able to build a digital rishi that when you ask a question he'll answer it exactly like a rishi would have because this this engine understands all the shastras understands all the shastras more in more detail than any pandit would and when you say what is the answer to this this guy will say mind mahabharat it said this in ramayana it said this in this verse it said this this guy said this it'll give you an authoritative like no human being could so you could use ai and machine learning to to expand any knowledge any any point of view you could build algorithms on dharma rather than algorithms on uh, you know the left right now uh, ai is built on algorithms of the global left in terms of their concept of intelligence their concept of human rights their concept so when they block you when i when i put up i'm sure when i put this up on my channel i'll get a message from uh, youtube which i often get saying that violates uh, social norms or something and they'll never tell me what these social norms are and who gets to decide them and what's wrong with my video but you know they have these algorithms that figure out uh, or, or in their own way and they they judge it according to the criteria of their value system their civilizational value system their grand narrative the western what i call western universalism uh, 
is the foundation, intellectual foundation on which AI machine learning is done. So we need to understand that we are moving in the whole world of AI, which is going to be devastating for dharma unless we, are, we know how to reverse that, take over and, and in, inject dharma into this machine learning. Because right now, the machine learning, the databases, the biases are not good for us. Lovely. Thank you. And thank you for doing that so succinctly. Um, so, so, so we can look forward to a sort of AI brihaspati in, in the future, hopefully. Um, I, I'm going to come into audience Q&A. There's plenty coming in. Um, what I'll do is if they've directed it to a particular person, then I'll also direct it. And if you'd like to come in, just pop your hand up very briefly and, and I'll come bring you in on that question as well. So this, this question has come from Vishwanath uh, Ji. He's asked, when we're talking about hard power versus soft power, is there a third dimension, intellectual power? And, and his follow-up is, why don't we use our intellectual power to drive the world? And I'm going to come to Amishji on this one. Uh, intellectual power is one of the drivers of either soft power or hard power. So intellectual power can be in terms of analysis, in terms of uh, of, of shastras, which is actually which goes into soft power. Intellectual power can also be used to create drones and to create uh, uh, you know, uh, to create weaponry, to create economic power, which actually adds to hard power. It's one of the fuels. So I mean, it ultimately goes sure, so, so, yeah. into hard power or soft power. Very simply, the intellect contributes to both. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, we've got a question from Samhitji, um, and this is directed to Rajivji. He said. If, if dharma will not be able to prevail in the new, new coming or the, let's say the upcoming power structure, what can we do as part of the younger generation to sort of, to, to sort of encourage, encourage dharma to prevail? So my uh, prediction of the world we're entering is a world similar to what, hap- what led to the Mahabharata. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that uh, we are, the Kurukshetra is becoming uh, difficult. It is not uh, Dharma-based because the world population has expanded way too much. Resources are not there. There's a contest between uh, there's going to be haves and have-nots exacerbated with AI. There'll be more difference between haves and have-nots. Inequality will spread. Nations will become colonizer, colonized. So the, the fragmentation of the world into these kind of uh, schisms and these conflicts is going to enhance. Is going to, uh, and so I don't think that uh, uh, we can, uh, life is easy. I'm very sorry to say that my generation is handing over a very messy world to your generation. And I, I, on behalf of my generation, I'd like to apologize that we guys didn't do a good job. We didn't leave a good world for you guys. Look at all the mess in the world. And so, you know, people who are like 20s or even lower, I feel very sorry for them because they're going to face a lot of issues. So I, the their best they can do, the most important thing that a person can do is start his own personal journey, clean up your act. Live a dharmic life, be a yogi, be a tyagi in terms of sacrifice, be a, be a tapasvi in terms of hard work. And when you have built a certain character and done the karma, you can then talk about, you know, how it ought to be, what others should do and all that by example. But you, if I get 100, 200 emails a day telling me what to do and all that, but none of them actually done it. I mean, it's like telling Virat Kohli how to hit centuries, but you never held a bat in your life and faced a single ball. I mean, why would Virat Kohli take advice from such a person? So there, but our people are full of trying to tell somebody else what to do. So I would say that the first thing the young people should do is quit fixing the world, but first fix yourself. And if you are, if you, uh, the, the individual is the atomic at, atom 
and the world is built of these atomic entities, these elementary particles of the individuals. So do that, and you will get remarkable results. We have, you'll have an ecosystem of people around you who are similar to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you it, should be bot- it, should be, it should be bottom up. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. So we work from the individual. There'll be institutions as well, but yes. those institutions are, are built on individuals. Yes. And this idea of over a long period of time, so self-discipline and building that capacity. Perfect, you got it. Fine, so we're going to come to uh, Brother Petkar, and he's, he's directed this to Amishji. He said that, Amishji, you're, you're, you're distinguishing liberalism and religion as faith or belief-based concepts. Um, what exactly differentiates dharma? Is it true that we don't have to believe in something? Uh, no, I didn't differentiate uh, religion as faith and liberalism. I said there are two groups of religion. One is a religion where uh, faith is all important. It's at the heart of it. And the other, the dharmic religions at the heart of it is wisdom. You can have faith or you may not have faith. That's not important. The dharmic religions are Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism. At the heart of it is wisdom. Now, there are some who have faith, you know, among the dharmic religions. I have faith, for example. I'm a very devout Lord Shiva worshipper. Uh, but uh, that does not mean that I say that an atheist cannot be a Hindu. No, that's nonsense. That's not a part of our, uh, a part of our uh, traditions. Uh, because what is most important in uh, the dharmic religions is whether you're living and working according to dharma, whether you're following your swadharma or not. Whether you have faith or not is an individual uh, uh, is an individual choice. It's your personal choice. So therefore, my, my submission to you would be explore dharma, understand dharma, and try and live according to dharma. And in this, I would uh, support what Rajiv Ji said. What is most critical is having that self-discipline, being focused, being productive by yourself, pointing fingers at others is the easiest thing to do. Uh, but uh, the first thing to do is focus on yourself, make yourself productive, and then we'll build up to something better. So just, I'd like to get both of your inputs briefly on this. This is a sort of theme that's been running through our discussion. So is, is it fair then to surmise that the dharma is more like a medium or a structure? It's the sort of oldest pursuit of individual and societal flourishing. Is, is that a fair summary then? Rajiv, did you want to go first? Or? Go ahead. Okay. No, my, my thing of, uh, my understanding of dharma would be that it's in balance. Uh, one of the most wonderful lines I'd heard, I'd heard from my uh, grandfather, Ati Sarvatra Varjit, extremism of any kind should be avoided. So if you go to individualism to such an extent that you destroy all sense of community, all sense of family, all uh, sense of traditions, that's not good. You create an atomized society where loneliness is the norm, as in, frankly, many countries in the West. Uh, or if you go on the other extreme, where there are societies like that, where traditions, community overtake everything about, uh, you know, I do not leave the space for individualism. Where does innovation come from? Innovation comes from uh, an individual who refuses to take no for an answer, who says, so what if everything has been done this way for 5,000 years? I will think of something different. So you need a balance between individualism and traditions, which is what I think dharma Okay, we'll, we'll move on. There's a few more questions. I'm going to try and get through as many as possible. Um, this one's addressed to Rajivji. It's come from Jay, and he's asking, why is there this necessity, and he's called it violent power. Uh, why is there this necessity for hard power, and, and why can't we just be using, and again, he's, he's used the term nonviolent power. 
Well, you know, uh, you should ask why did uh, Sri Krishna uh, fail to use nonviolent power? After all, he, he ought to be uh, he's teaching us. And why did Sri Ram Ramchandra fail to use uh, nonviolent power? So this is how you ought to read uh, itihas. You should read itihas to learn all these things. What, what is the what are the what is the prioritization? You he, they both tried nonviolent. They tried persuasion. They tried soft power. And at some point in time, they had to use hard power, violence, uh, killing. Uh, so the message being given is, don't be afraid to do that. That may be what you are, the, what in that context. Uh, and today we are living in a context similar to that. So I, I really honestly believe that this business of nonviolence, uh, you know, this ahimsa should not be translated as nonviolence. Himsa means harm and ahimsa is non-harming. So you have to take the choices, the relative choices available. Uh, it, maybe I have to kill this one guy because otherwise he's going to kill a thousand people. So killing one guy is actually a himsa because I'm minimizing the harm among the available choices. And there is no choice of uh, everything is nice and hunky-dory. There is no such choice. So we live in a complex world where things are bad and worse. So you have to choose between what's bad and what's worse. That's the world we're living in. Yeah. You, should, you should prepare the young, young generation to live in a world of scarcity, uh, greed, uh, tremendous uh, hard power, destructive capability, a lot of identity politics, all kinds of things that we, we would like to dismiss. It's not a good idea to leave a message that it's all going to be great and we are all great and we just, you know, everything will be taken care of because that's, that's a disservice to the youth. So the education has to put psychological toughness in, us, in our youth. What's really interesting to me as, you know, a sort of onlooker is Amishji seems to be propagating this idea through his narratives and his books in the, in the way we get exposed to, to these individuals. And, and Rajivji, you're, you're confronting it and saying we should look at society as it is rather than we would like it to be. That, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, from audience questions. But thank you to our audience for sending them in. I'd like to give you both now the opportunity for some closing remarks and We've explored a breadth of topic. Um, so in these closing remarks, can we explore this idea of, is this a sort of inevitable cycle that civilizations go through where, you know, bad times make strong people and strong people make strong societies and flourishing societies and flourishing societies make wealth and um, passivity and everybody enjoys it. And then these societies crumble. So are we just experiencing a natural state or is it something bigger than that we're experiencing? Um, is the key question. And alongside that, do add, away, add your takeaways and takeaways for our audience. We'll come to Amishji. So two minutes for your closing remarks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ravi. Uh, you know, you took the words out of my mouth that uh, tough times create tough men, tough men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create tough times. Is one of the aphorisms. I would replace men with persons because it can be men and women. Uh, in uh, you know, in the Indian way, there are cycles. Okay, one of the things that we have to understand is uh, one of the worst uh, catastrophes uh, of the last uh, uh, 100, 150 years was the Second World War. Uh, the generation that went through it uh, learned from those tough times and created a world which led to the long peace. Seventy years of uh, you know, often it is forgotten. I'd encourage you to read uh, this book called Factfulness, which showed how the last 70 years was perhaps the best humanity has ever had. Per capita violence is the lowest ever. 
per capita poverty is the lowest ever middle classes lead lifestyles that the royalty could have lived 150 years ago uh many people were safer than ever small men such as i am and women are safer than we've ever been in history in these last uh, 70 years but uh, you know catastrophic success there's this term called catastrophic success that success has the roots of its own destruction and perhaps that's what the world uh, is uh, is coming to today um and there will be tough times there will be tough times but hopefully a better world will emerge uh, and all of us uh, who are aware of this must make our own contributions to make it better thank you very much uh, highly insightful i think as an idea to ponder and what what was the name of the book again factfulness factfulness okay thank you yeah. um rajiv ji your your closing remarks the same question and perhaps a takeaway for our audience so uh i'm a pragmatist uh, uh one of the sections in this ai book is a pragmatic a pragmatics versus aesthetics uh you know there there is a lot lot to be said for good aesthetics and all that but i'm i'm a pragmatist i think at this point in history especially the message to the youth is you got to be very pragmatic and that means this decade the next 10 years so think about this decade and not the big cycles of thousands of years and what may happen and are we in this or that cycle just look at what it will take for you to be doing okay for yourself for your country for your dharma for all of humanity in the next 10 years and if you can achieve that and get through that because there are some troubling times then it will be okay long term also what you need to do is study what are the forces at work uh i i consider ai to be more fundamental and a bigger force than the industrial revolution i consider it bigger than the space race uh this is changing the jobs this is changing the geopolitics and weaponry is changing human psychology who's managing us who has the adhikar who's hacking us it's changing the spirituality there's a whole chapter i have battleground number 4 out of the 5 is uh, spirituality the battle for self some of the questions that you were asking i wish you had gone into the that chapter is called battle for self and that is the battle for dharma it's called, i i i call it algorithm versus being that's the tension are we algorithm are we being algorithm being what is what's being enhanced by the ai and being is uh, dharma so it, that's the tension of the whole thesis and so the the bottom line is uh, i i don't think you can wish away Uh, the this new technology nor is it necessarily bad technology it's here so the the dharma should control the ai rather than ai controlling the our metaphysics uh, at the confluence of the two where dharma offers an open architecture and this is the latest empirical progress and advancement that humanity has made that should be brought in it should be brought in the service of dharma if you can do that you can change the world the the the, the whole ecosystem intellectual ecosystem you can change the discourse and if you don't change that i don't think all the nostalgia in the world and all this greatness of how great we are and the narratives and all that is going to prevail because this is a title this is a huge tsunami that will take over so that's my uh, takeaway message to all of you thank you very comprehensive uh, that that concluding remarks so gentlemen thank you very much for joining us here today that's all we've got time for uh, unfortunately but but it was a pleasure to have you back on vm uh, and and we look forward to having you you know a third time uh, to, to dive even deeper into into these topics so a special th- thank you to you both um thank you to our audience for joining at home and providing some fantastic questions there are there are plenty more so what we may do is tweet them at our speakers uh, or pose them later on it, it seems 
during our discussion that we started with a seeming false dichotomy of should the West embrace dharma versus this Eastern idea. And we've arrived towards somewhere where we're pointing more towards this idea of an individual responsibility or capacity uh, beyond the, although the grand narratives are present beyond all of these, it's that individual that this change will start with and the importance of ourselves building our capacity to then implement this change. So thank you to all of our well wishes also at home, uh, without who these events would not be possible. Namaste and good night.